0: Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. The word missional or mission has become very in vogue with churches at the moment. Uh, To be missional or to be on mission simply means to adopt the posture of a missionary in order to reach people for, for Jesus. And it's given rise in the church circles to phrases like living a missional life, or churches that are starting missional communities. And uh, this is not saying anything is wrong with that. We ourselves aren't immune from it. At the moment, as an eldership team and as a staff team, we are currently revisiting and relooking and rewording our mission statement. So kind of everything at the moment is in, in church life is around this idea of mission and what it means to be on mission. The challenge with that phrase, though, is... We tend to start to think of mission as something that we do for God, something that we get to do for God, rather than realizing that God Himself has been on mission from the beginning of time before any of us came onto the scene, whether here at church in the city or even onto the planet. God has always been on mission. And that's the language of the book of Genesis. God speaking to Adam and Eve and making it clear that he is a God who is extending his kingdom, extending his reign and rule, and he speaks over Adam and Eve and he says, he says, go forth and multiply and increase and subdue the earth and rule over the earth. God is equipping Adam and Eve to go and be on mission for him. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this language coming up again and again as God speaks to Noah. God speaks to Abraham, to his people, the Israelites, and, and this whole idea of God being on mission kind of finds its, its pinnacle in the person of Jesus Christ. God sends his son, Jesus. God, God, God sends his son to, to come and to live on earth and to be on mission in order to rescue people back into relationship with God. And Jesus himself calls people to be on mission with him, to, to fulfill the purpose that God had, had intended Jesus says to his disciples and, and speaks over us as well, "Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you." A few verses, later, or a, a few chapters later, in the book of Acts, uh, uh, Jesus meets Paul, Paul the Apostle, or who would, who, the man who would become Paul the Apostle. And Paul is doing everything he can to, to press up and, and push up against the mission of God, which is to extend his kingdom through local church. Jesus radically saves Paul and he says to him, Paul, stop kicking against the thing that I'm doing. I want you to be part of the mission that I am on. And later we read in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes the, the most incredible summary statement, I think, of what, of what summarizes uh, the, 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 the mission that God is on. And it's this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under the person of Jesus Christ. The point I'm trying to make by saying all of that is is simply this, that the church of Jesus Christ doesn't give birth to God's mission, but God's mission gives birth to the church. And our very identity is wrapped up in that particular reality. We need to be reminded that we are a, a sent people of God carrying his authority with the purpose of being on mission to advance his kingdom, Mission is not something we do. Mission is something that God is doing, and He has called us to be part of that which He is doing. Now, that distinction, you might think, doesn't seem like something that is very significant, that that distinction between being sent and being on mission. But actually, I think it is. Because when we make it about ourselves, when we we think it's our contribution to what God is wanting us to do, suddenly the purpose for which we are sent becomes very self-centered. We start to realize that we start to behave in a way that, God, look at the size of our church. Look at what we have created for you. Surely you must be pleased with us rather than realizing that what God has, has, has called us to do is to be a sent people going to seek and save the lost. And I think, if I'm honest, I think that's what's happened to the church predominantly in the West over the last 50 years. If you, reach, if you read lots of church, church books at the moment, it is a period in the, in the history of the church in the West over the last 50 years where the church has become increasingly and intentionally attractional. And what that simply means is the church is, is trying to create an environment, particularly on a Sunday morning, where the world can come to us rather than realizing that we are called to go and reach the world. The motive shouldn't be... What we're trying to build, the motive should be are we being part of what God is actually doing? And this is in complete contrast to the early church. The early church saw exponential growth over the last 50 years when the church in the West has become increasingly missional, increasingly missional and increasingly attractional. Statistics tell us that the church is actually in decline. And that's not what we read about in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see this church that is birthed by the Holy Spirit, centered on the person of Jesus, and seeing exponential growth. In AD 33, when Jesus was alive, there were approximately 500 to 600 people who believed in Jesus, who were Christ followers. Fast forward to the end of the century, another 70 years later, AD 100, church historians say there were about 25,000 Christians, predominantly in the city of Jerusalem. Two hundred years later, eighty-three hundred church historians tell us there were twenty to twenty-five million Christians. And friends, this exponential growth happened at a time when it was illegal for churches to own their own buildings, when there was no such thing as seminaries and, and, and Christian schools, and therefore no such thing as trained professional Christian leaders. There was not the endless church, the, the endless church ministries, and these missions organizations that we currently now have. And no church in that time had a social media account. In fact, it was a a time when it was illegal to be a Christian. And not that any of these things are wrong. It's nothing wrong for us to desire to own a building. In fact, it's something that God has for us right now. And we are working on our social media account. But the problem is... The issue is the church in the West has become dependent on these things instead of dependent on the, on the characteristics that, speak, that are shown in the Word of God of, of how we can see powerful exponential impact as the early church did. Imagine if we were able to embrace the characteristics of the early church as well as being wise and winsome in our approach to impact our, our particular culture. What an incredible impact, I believe, the church would be able to make. So, what are some of these characteristics? I heard a friend of mine teach this incredible sermon over the summer where he identified some of the characteristics of the early church. The church, not too dissimilar to the, to the church that Peter is writing to in our letter that we are studying at the moment. And my friend preached this amazing message. This is actually going to be a foretaste of a preaching sermon, that I, a preaching series that I want to do in the start of next year. But here are, are, are kind of eight characteristics of, of the early church. And can I just say, as an, as an aside, these same characteristics have been identified in the church in China, the underground church in China. Over the same period of 50 years, when we've seen a decline in the West, the church in China has seen exponential growth. And these are some of the characteristics. Firstly, without diminishing the fact that Jesus Christ is savior, the early church understood and centered their lives around, the, around the, the, the the fact and the reality that Jesus Christ is lord, the risen and ascended king who is reigning and ruling over his kingdom. Secondly, with that in mind, the early church lived with the conviction that every day they stepped out into the world, they believed they were being sent by Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to go and continue to do the work that he had already started, that work of advancing the kingdom of God. The early church emphasized the importance and the power of a called, trained, gifted, empowered, and mobilized body of Christ, the kingdom of priests, and they emphasized the body of Jesus over a dependence on human leadership. And friends, I think you would all agree that the church in the West is far too leadership centric. It's far too dependent on leaders. The fourth thing, having just said what I said and without contradicting that, the church, the, the early church believed that, uh, that it was important to have servant leaders operating in their God-given ability and calling. Number five, in the early church, community wasn't formed just for the sake of community. There's a, another phrase that's kind of thrown around in church circles today, doing life together which I understand the heart behind that, but in the scriptures, community never existed just for the sake of community. It was community around the idea of being on mission that God was calling us to. And Jesus Christ shows us that incredible example. He calls 12 random individuals from different walks of life and he says, come follow me. And as they followed Jesus, they became the backbone of what would become this early church that we are speaking about. Point number six, the early church used their homes as the central building, not castles to escape to, to get away from the world. And I think this is absolutely vital, especially in our journey as a church to find a building. We believe God has called church in the city to, 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 to find, and God wants to provide us a home that is ours in the city. But even in doing that, friends, I want to say that is going to be a place for us to meet on Sundays to meet occasionally during the week or during the month. But the central reality that God has called us to is to find each of us in their respective neighborhoods and homes and communities in which we live across the city. The church building mustn't become central. Point number seven, church or, or kingdom advancement and growth of the early church happened on the edges. What I simply mean by that is, Sunday gatherings were important for encouragement and for exhortation and for strengthening. But salvations and miracles happen predominantly in the world. And then, lastly, the power of God flowed visibly through their lives. With those distinctives in mind, I want to read an, a short excerpt of a letter that was written by a first century Christian. Around the same time that Peter was writing this epistle, This person wrote wrote a letter to his friend to explain why the church was growing as rapidly as, as it was. Listen to what he says. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They share their table with everyone, but never their bed. They love all, but are persecuted by most. At times they are poor, yet make everyone rich. They are short of many things, but they never go without. They are treated outrageously, but respond respectfully. They are mocked, but bless in return. When they do good, they are attacked. And when they are attacked, they rejoice as if given new life. And these were the very Christians that Peter was writing to. These five churches in now what is known as modern-day Turkey, who were who were living Christ-centered lives, radical followers of Jesus Christ. But because of their stance, because of their because of, of their otherness, the, the countercultural way in which they were living, they were facing persecution and hardship because of their faith. But through it all, the kingdom of God was forcefully advancing. And friends, I think there are times when we when we read statistics like this, where we where we see the early church growing from a, a handful of believers, twenty five thousand, to twenty million in less than two hundred years, and we cry out, "Lord, would you do it again in our nation?" And that should be our cry. But friends, I, I wonder whether we accept the 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 the, 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 um, the responsibility that we have to live in a countercultural manner. We cannot live like the world lives. Not and the way we live is not in judgment of the world, but God has called us to serve a different king. And that is Jesus Christ. So Peter's letter was, was incredibly important then. And I want to say it's just as important now as we are called to live this countercultural way. The question Peter's letter is answering is: how do we live? In the world? How do we love and how do we honor and how do we respect those who don't follow Jesus? How do we live in the world without being of the world? How do we stay true to our convictions when we realize that the very convictions we live by are being marginalized more and more? And his answer is quite simple. Peter's answer is quite simple. He starts off by reminding us of who we are in Jesus. And what Jesus has done. In chapter one, he tells us, you are born again into a living hope. And you have built your life on the, on the solid foundation that is the living stone. And because of that, remember who you are. Look at, at, at chapter two, verse nine. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are. And in in verse 11 of chapter 2, he changes tack and he now begins to teach us how we are to live. And that's what James so wonderfully started last week. Outstanding sermon last week. Essentially, what Peter is teaching to us on how we are to live is simply this. Let your lives be so full of grace and love and mercy. Let our lives so reflect the person of Jesus that when Jesus moves and ministers to the people that are opposing us and persecuting us, they will recognize it's Jesus because they've already seen Jesus in you. That's essentially what Peter is is teaching us. Verse 23 of chapter two, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, what what we are being taught is when people oppose you for your faith, follow Jesus's example of submission and suffering, trusting that God will make all things right. That's not our responsibility, but it's God who will make all things right. And he will set the record straight. And so that brings us to chapter 3, verse 8, where we're going to continue as, as Peter continues to remind us of how we ought to live in the world without being of the world. And he starts off in verse 8. He says, finally, finally, all of you, he's spoken about what it means to reflect Jesus in marriage and in the place of work and in our communities. And now he's saying to us, he's saying, Christians, you need to show the world how to live in community with one another. You need to show the world what it looks like to have another king. You need to show the world how what it looks like when Jesus is Lord, be the salt and be the light of, of the earth. He says, Finally, all of you, be like minded. Live in harmony, live in unity. Don't be a contrarian. Don't be different just for the sake of being different. Be sympathetic. <laughs> be conscious and be aware of others' needs and others' feelings. Be tender hearted. Don't be hard hearted. Love one another, he says. You are part of a family. You are part of God's family. Don't be independent. Don't be isolated. Be compassionate. Be understanding. Be gracious. Don't be judgmental. Be humble. Be willing to listen to one another. Be willing to learn from one another. Don't be ambitious. Don't be proud at the cost of. of relationships with one another. He goes on, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. That's how the world does things. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. You were called to live this way, he he says to us. You were called, you and I were called to be a blessing to others. God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. And he goes on to say, we must live this way so that you can inherit a blessing. Let me ask you, does this describe the intentional way that you build and care for and protect the relationships that you have within the church? Or are you quick with words, quick with, 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 with hard-hearted response? Not opening up your heart to building relationship with others. Peter turns then to Psalm 34 in, in verse 10 through to verse 12, he quotes Psalm 34 to, to validate or to emphasize his particular point. Now, he's already referred to Psalm 34 earlier in chapter 2, and, and, and what I imagine is Peter is actually spending time in the Psalms while he's writing this particular letter. And he says in verse 10, a direct quote from Psalm 34, for whoever would love life and see good days, whoever wants to live in that ongoing experience of the blessing and the favor and, and, and the nearness of God, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. That word must is a very un-American word, so I've been taught. In South Africa, when we lived there 14 years ago, we, we, South African culture is, is, is quite militant, and it's very um, it's it's very normal for someone in a position like a preacher or a pastor to say, you must not do this, or you must do that. And in the first couple of months of being here in America, I was told, you must not say that to Americans. You need to be, I would strongly encourage, or may I suggest, or I think it would behoove you to be able to do this. Those are the phrases that I was taught to use in the American culture. The wonderful truth of the scriptures is they are not susceptible or submitted to culture. The Bible says, if you want to love life and see good days, you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. You must watch what you say. You must be careful with the words that you use when you speak about others. You must turn from evil and do good. You must do what is right not following a set of rules. We don't follow the, you know, a set of, of, of rules, the Old Testament way of, of, of living according to rule keeping. No, we follow the spirit of God intentionally. The wonderful truth of the Bible is when we follow the spirit intentionally, we fulfill the law accidentally. Our heart is, is just to follow the person of, of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He carries on in verse 13. Who is gonna harm you if you are eager to do good? He says, listen, there's a way that you can minimize some of your suffering. There's no guarantee, but if if you do what is right, you might be able to minimize some of that opposition. But he carries on. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you will be blessed. Why? Because we're doing our utmost to honor Jesus in the face of opposition. We're doing our, our best to, 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 to do what we know Jesus would want us to do in that particular situation. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Verse 15 carries on. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. You to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Essentially, what he is saying is don't suffer for being an idiot. Don't be that toxic env- 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 Don't be that person who creates the toxic environment at work, and then when you're asked to leave, say, "Well, it's because I'm a Christian. I'm being persecuted." Yes. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying if you're going to suffer, suffer for being a follower of Jesus Christ, loving and being gracious and merciful to those around you. But I want to focus on what he says in, v- in the second part of verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. There are only two times in the epistles, many times in the gospels, but only two times in the epistles where we are encouraged to share our faith. And both times it is in the context of answering questions. Here in 1 Peter chapter three and the second time is in Colossians chapter four, where Paul essentially says, let your conversation be full of grace so that you may know how to answer everyone. You see, if we live in this way that Peter is saying, if we live in the way that we are responding to evil with blessing, if we live in the way where we are being sympathetic and like-minded and humble-hearted and compassionate, if we live in that way thats that is countercultural, that is counter-cultural, we're going to eventually be asked the question, why do you live this way? Or what is the reason for your hope? And we can tell them the reason for our hope is not circumstances, but it's the living hope. It's Jesus Christ. But you see, here's why I think answering questions is so powerful in, 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 as a way for us to share the love of Jesus. Sharing the love of Jesus works best when God is already at work in that person's life. And, and them asking questions is a clue or an indication that God is already getting, getting at their hearts. I've shared this illustration before, so forgive me for those who've seen it, but sometimes we view sharing our faith Like someone trying to summit Mount Everest, they have this—they have this—the weight of expectation and responsibility upon them as a a believer in Jesus. I must share my faith, and they carry this this weight of, of 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 expectation and responsibility. And and just like a person trying to summit summit Everest, they're carrying this heavy weight. They're looking for the right weather conditions to make sure that the summit happens at the perfect time. And that's what we do. We're looking around for the perfect conditions so that we can share our faith that hopefully we're not made, made a, a fool of or, or hopefully we're able to be successful. But even if you are able to summit and share your faith or if you fall short, you're so exhausted from the experience that you can't do it again for another year, just like a mountaineer. I think the better way for us to share faith is, is how most South Africans get, learnt, get taught how to drive a car. In South Africa, just around the time I was taking my my, my driver's license, there was an expectation for us to show the driving instructor that every five seconds we were checking our mirrors. So we would drive along, and every five seconds we would physically have to look in the rearview mirror and the side mirrors to show the the, the driving instructor that that's what we're doing. (laughs) That's how we would literally drive the car. I mean, it was a miracle we were able to stay straight. But the point is this, I think that's how we should be sharing our faith. Not carrying a burden of expectation, but looking for clues as to what God is doing. Where are you at work, Lord? Where are you at Ah, oh, there you're at work. And you begin to respond to that person. This is how Jesus ministered. Matthew chapter 8 tells the incredible story of the centurion who comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my servant is ill. And Jesus asks him the question, he says, do you want me to heal him? Do you want me to come and heal him? And he says, and the centurion responds to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, you are a man of authority. Can you not just say the word, and he'll be healed? And Jesus knew right away. There's the clue. God's already at work in his heart. You have what you wanted. You're a man of great faith. And at that moment, that person was healed. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who would, uh, to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. And let's be honest, guys, this is not an easy way to live. It's not an easy way to live, to be gracious and to be loving and to be merciful and to be patient. We never get thanked for doing what is right in the world. It's like the sound guys up there, Nate and Jenny and others who do sound. No one ever thanks them when the sound is is perfect. But the moment the sound is wrong, oh my goodness, those sound guys, you know, Really. It's exactly what we experience in the world. No one thanks us for being gracious. No one thanks us for being loving. But the moment you get angry in a situation where you shouldn't have gotten angry, you get labeled as the hypocrite the world already knew that you were. And so what is Paul's answer to that? Verse 18, look to Jesus for Christ also suffered. Christ suffered unjustly. He did everything right, and yet he still suffered. Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. You and I, because of Jesus' suffering, because Jesus took upon our sins and gave us his righteousness, you and I are able to, 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 to be brought into the presence of God. We have the right of access into God's presence because we are New Testament priests. We can find mercy and grace when we are feeling persecuted and opposed by the world. Strength to carry on. Verse 18 now is to the end of the section that we're looking at to the end of 22 is probably the most obscure passage in all of Scripture. And I give James incredible credit for teaching on last week a a passage that was for the last 150 years has troubled this nation But I want to take you 150 years and raise you 1,900 years of, since this was written, how difficult interpreting this particular passage is. It says in verse 18, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolized baptism that now also saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of, the, of a clear conscience towards God. Can I just say, and we don't have time to teach in this, but baptism does not save us. We're saved by faith, by uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. For the sake of time, I need to run through this real quickly. But quickly to say, some people believe that Jesus went into hell to preach to imprisoned spirits. And I want to say, that's not what this passage is speaking Those that he preached to are imprisoned spirits now, but they were not imprisoned spirits when he preached to them. It's the same way if you were to ask me the question, when was President Obama born? And I would say to you, President Obama was born in 1961, but he wasn't president when he was born in 1961. He was just Barack Obama, but we refer to him as President Obama. And that's essentially what what Peter is saying. Jesus preached to imprisoned spirits, they were not imprisoned spirits then at the time of Noah when he preached to them, although they are in prison spirits now because they didn't respond to the gospel that was being preached. The second question you have to ask is how on earth did Jesus preach to people at, at the time of Noah? Well, it's the same way that Jesus preached to you when you received the gospel. Did Jesus in his physical body come and preach the gospel to you when you responded to the, to, to, to the truth of, of, of the word? no. It was Jesus preaching to you through some friend of yours or through some person at church who was lovingly and graciously showing you a different way to live. And you responded to the truth that that person was speaking. You responded to the Jesus in that person, if that makes sense. And that's why he refers to Noah. Noah. Because Peter is saying, we are just like Noah. Noah was a a persecuted minority living in a pagan world, trying to show the world what it looks like to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's exactly who we are, friends. We are called to show the world what it looks like to serve another king. And at times it feels like we're building an ark that is a thousand miles away from the nearest ocean. But we need to be patient because it says here, God was patient at the time of Noah. Do you know why God has not come to judge the world for the endless sense of injustice that we see? Do you know why God has not come to judge our nation or our city or your place of work for the endless injustice that you see? It's because God desires every person to come to know the reality of who Jesus Christ is. It's because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the fact, the verse 17 after John 3:16 tells us that God did not send Jesus to judge the world but to save the world through him. You and I get to be those that declare and proclaim the reality of who Jesus is. We're we'll bringing this into land. A couple more minutes and we'll be finished. We get to show and tell the world the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 18 tells us that Jesus was put to death. But verse 19 tells us that Jesus was made alive. Can I say, friends, Jesus' death means nothing unless Jesus was raised from the dead? Jesus' death means nothing unless Jesus was raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, when an Old Testament priest would go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice, he would offer that sacrifice and everyone would be outside listening to hear if he was alive. And if the priest came out of the inner court, back out to where everyone was, their response was, he's alive, he's alive, the sacrifice has been accepted. And that's what you and I are called to, to proclaim, friends. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The sacrifice has been accepted. We are free. You and I are free from condemnation because Jesus is alive. You and I are free from condemnation, not because of his death alone, but because of his death and his subsequent resurrection. Imagine your lights don't work at home and a friend comes and he says, you know what, I'm going to go down to the kind of city, the ComEd and I'm gonna go and pay your, your, your bill. And you think, great, my friend is willing, but I don't know if he's able. And so you sit in darkness for a couple of hours and your friend goes off and you don't know whether it's, he's gonna pay the debt. And suddenly the lights come on and your answer is, yes, my friend was not only willing, but he was able. The lights are on, the lights are on. That's who Jesus is, friends. Not just willing to pay the sacrifice, but able. And the sacrifice is accepted and and our chains are are off. We are free. We preach, we show, we tell the world Jesus' death and resurrection. But secondly, we show and tell the world the truth of his ascension. Look at verse 22. It tells us that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus is not just only savior. Remember the early church? They celebrated the fact that Jesus was Savior, but they built their lives around the reality that Jesus is now resurrected Lord. He is, not, he is Lord of all. He is Lord over all. He has authority over all. So our only response surely is to follow Jesus comprehensively. Every area of our lives submitted to the Lord of all. Our only response surely is to follow Jesus unconditionally. Sometimes following Jesus looks like death, it doesn't make sense. But in Jesus, resurrection always follows death. Resurrection always follows death. So by living counterculturally, we get to show and tell others the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. He is my savior, and therefore I'm free. We also get to show and tell the world about Jesus' ascension. I trust him as my Lord because He knows how to lead me. But friends, sometimes, we have to be able to preach that to ourselves. We cannot share of the fact that I am free unless we know that we are free ourselves. We cannot share about the reality that Jesus is our ascended king and I trust him completely unless I'm willing to trust him completely. Sometimes one of the greatest privileges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ is to preach the gospel to ourselves. Not that we get saved again, but that we remind ourselves of the reality that the lights are back on. The chains are off. I am free free from condemnation, able to come into the presence of the King of Kings and that he is my Lord. And even though what he's asking me to do doesn't make much sense and it looks like death, I trust him completely because he is the ascended King overall. And in Jesus, resurrection always follows death. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna break bread together and we're gonna celebrate the fact that Jesus is both our Savior and our King. Can I ask the worship team to come up if you wouldn't mind? We're going to break bread together and we're going to go back into singing one song of worship as we end the meeting together. As the worship team comes up quietly, can I ask you today, if you are visiting church in the city, are you able to say today that Jesus is my Savior? Are you able to say today, Jesus is my Lord? The gospel, the Bible teaches that the good news of the gospel is that we don't receive Jesus as Lord and Savior by, us, by first us giving something to God. We come empty handed and receive the free gift that is Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, if you're saying, Steve, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And before we break bread together as a church family, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that invitation today to say, Steve, I want to come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If that's you today, and I would love to pray with you right now to lead you in a prayer where you will uh, uh, ask and uh, invite Jesus to come into your heart and to reign and rule as King and Lord. If that's you today, could you very quickly and bravely slip up your hand? I would love to pray with you today and to lead you into relationship with Jesus. Anyone here would like to respond to that? Just quickly slip up your hand. I'd love to pray with you. Jesus, thank you for the incredible gift of your life. Our sin placed on you, your righteousness placed on us. And the incredible truth that that means that we are sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your ascension. We come to celebrate that this morning in Jesus' name. What we're going to do, friends, is as a church, often we, we, we want to experience, the, the Bible teaches there are different ways to experience breaking bread or communion. Sometimes breaking bread together is an opportunity for us to, to, to celebrate and to be thankful for what God has done through His Son, Jesus. It's a, it's a banquet feast. Sometimes breaking bread is an opportunity for us to reflect and to consider within our own hearts what God has done within us. Sometimes breaking bread is looking back and remembering all that God has done for us. Sometimes it's a celebration of unity, the fact that we are all one in the person of Jesus. But the aspect of communion that I want us to enjoy and celebrate today is the proclamation of who Jesus is. As we take the bread that represents his body, as we drink the grape juice that represents his blood, today we are gonna be proclaiming to ourselves that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He is my Savior. I am free. He is my Lord. I trust him completely. So I'm gonna invite you, if you wouldn't mind, standing up, come straight down grab a piece of bread, grab a small thing of grape juice, head back to your seats and remain standing. And then I'm gonna lead us as a church in breaking bread together as we proclaim the fact that Jesus is both Savior and Lord of our lives. So if you guys wouldn't mind coming on down, grabbing a piece of bread, grabbing some grape juice, making your way back to your seats, and then we're gonna break bread together and end off with a song of worship. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.